Um, so it's much longer than all of them, and it seems to call in, it's, it's a psalm that when you classify the psalms, it's called a royal psalm more often than not. And it's about sort of what David does and what God does through David. And these make up, I mean, depends on who classifies, but about 10 of the psalms at least are sort of royal psalms. And I think that they're often not popular psalms for Christians, because we don't quite relate to David and Zion and Jerusalem in the same way that these people did. So part of breaking that up has been uh, repairing that somewhat in our life is doing the psalms of ascent is that we are ascending towards Christ. As, as St. Augustine, who I've mentioned several times, talked about how we don't ascend with our feet, we ascend with our hearts towards God. And it's in that sort of movement in our lives that God is sort of bringing us into holiness and directing us towards the holiness of where he resides with Christ now, or where Christ is. And so that's how we're going through it. But this one gives like very concrete, um, literally concrete, because it's about the city, and a literal person, it's about David, to the sort of specificity of the Psalms. Like, it's very specific in a lot of ways, which none of the other ones were quite as specific. They were more like Christian ones we could just pray naturally, and we get to this one, and it's like a little bit different than the others. And it's focused on this history that I don't think we quite appreciate all the time. Because we, and this is just a short note, Scripture, I think, is helpful. I don't know what you would have used as an analogy four years ago, or 20 years ago. But Scripture often works in very hyperlinked ways, if you're familiar with that from the internet. Uh, if you click on one part, it opens up a whole other part. And so Scripture is this way of like just expanding and expanding and expanding the links back and forth. It's speaking to each other. It's resounding within its own pages. It's making this sort of mosaic of, of beauty when you really look at it. And so when you isolate one part, you can always bring it to some other part. And so we call Jesus Christ, and we call him Messiah, the Anointed One, and we do this. And I think oftentimes Christians forget that that's hyperlink backwards into all this stuff that's mentioned in this psalm. It's a hyperlink into what David means. It's a hyperlink to what this, and, and this has really become apparent for me more convictionally than ever is with our summers in which we're going through the Torah, in which when we went through Leviticus, exciting times, um, we found at many passages these enactments were literally inscribed on the body of Jesus, that he went through these in this way. So even in the strangest parts of scripture, you find that it's linked back and forth. And so I think intuitively, Christians should know and have a greater appreciation for psalms like these because they help name first the messianic hope that was fulfilled in Jesus, which we'll get to, but also they help make sense of some of the titles we associate with Jesus. I mean, there are, um, I don't remember who it was, I was making a joke about like if we had an autograph of Jesus, how much it would be worth. I don't remember why I was making that joke. But point was, is like, Christ is not his last name. It wouldn't say Jesus Christ. Um, uh, it wouldn't be like that. But that's the way sometimes I think we think of it is that's his name, Jesus Christ. But it's actually this relationship to David and the anointed one and these other things that fills out this term. But I think this psalm, as we've been walking through the psalm of the sense, really answers the question of why. So if you were making this journey with a kid, and you said, hey, we're going to Jerusalem and to Zion, at some point they would say, why? <laughs> um, why are we making this trip? Why are we doing this? Next question is, are we there yet? There yet. <laughs> yes. 
Charlie, you should be a preacher if you naturally link to that. That's a, um, like 99% of us would just jump to that joke next, um, even without thinking about it. It's our reflex. Um, are we there yet? Why are we making this journey? And this one clearly names it, and but that the Lord has chosen this place. The Lord has chosen to Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling, saying, this is my resting place forever and ever. Here I will sit in throne, and I have desired it. Why are we going to Zion? Why are we doing this ascent? Why are we going this way? Because it is the place the Lord has desired to make his home. It is the place that God has taken up residency in the world. Now, what's great about this is that's not all they would say. They could jump back, way back, into the stories of the Ark and the Ten Commandments and all that in the Old Testament, or way back in the Torah. Um, they could jump into stories about King David, like the one that um, Kara read for us during uh, the service, about these stories about how David came to make that the place where it resided. They could tell all these stories about, and so it might be as a kid, if you, dad tells the same stories over and over again, I don't know why I pick dads, um, you stop asking why, because he tells you the same story over and over again. Although, incidentally enough, these stories seem deeper than that. So, like, my family, I don't know why, I'm sure it had something to do with the 60s and 70s, would watch the Ten Commandments every Easter, and we never got tired of that story. The one with Charlton Heston, not the Prince of Egypt. The animated one. Um, uh, but we watch it every Easter, and it, I could see that if this was the place he was ascended to, that these stories are so multifaceted. They so, I mean, people have been telling them for millenniums that it seems like they have a deeper resonance within us. You don't get, I think, sick and tired of them the same way you do if you've ever tried to rewatch any of the Avengers films. It can be very difficult, because none of the mystery is there the second time. It's the exact same thing. Whereas if you're watching um, and moving into these scriptural stories, there's always, I think, another angle, another way, another place in which they can open up our imaginations. And so this psalm answers the why question of why we're on this journey by recounting both what David does and what God does in sort of filling this place in Jerusalem and in making this God's home. But one of the things that I wanted to talk about that relates to this, which is I think why sometimes we turn away from this, is what uh, the biblical studies or Bible professor Walter Brueggemann calls the scandal of the particular, um, that God really takes residency in these particular people, in this particular expression, in Jerusalem and not someplace else. So and I think our modern sensibilities, we like the universal. Uh, we like universal laws. We like uh, we have a universal bill of rights nowadays, which is sponsored by the UN. We like universally applicable things so that we can make sense of the world in grand scale. And yet, what seems to happen, particularly after the flood, it seems like God um, in the flood sort of enacts a universal solution to the problem. And what he finds is that's that's not the correct solution. What actually then after that is he chooses Abraham, out of all the nations, out of all the families in the east. He chooses Abraham. And so as Christians, I think sometimes we have a tendency, which is true, Christ is the universal Lord of everyone and everywhere. But we forget that he's birthed and comes out of this particular space. You only need to read the genealogies that make up the beginning of 
of Luke and Matthew to see how all of this is playing out, how Jesus' body comes from this particular space. He's not, um, if you want to think about Greek gods, who sort of come from on high and sort of rule over everyone just because they can, just because they are, just because that's true. This god seems to take residency up in the small um, to become more universal through that. But it's the particular that I think is a real scandal for us when we think about it. That God really chooses one nation, one place, one king in David that awaits another king. One people, I think, is hard for us to wrap our minds around as modern people. And yet it's the truth that's proclaimed to us throughout the scriptures. is that God has inhabited this unique space. And it's interesting, I was thinking about it on the way here. Um, sometimes it seems like, with, with particularly the rabbis I know, that, that the God they know as Yahweh is the Lord of everyone, but he only really loves us. Um, uh, and that's a, it's a fascinating way to think about what it means for them to be a people in the world. And it's a fascinating way to think about how Jesus expands this. So they were blessed to be a blessing to the nations. It turns out, after Jesus, that that claim has expanded to include everyone in a new way. I mean, for many of us, it, the best hope, if we wanted to become Jewish, would to become sort of Gentile God-fearers. We would never become Jewish in the truest sense of the word. And Christianity seems to blow that up, and I think that's why we lean towards the universal at times and forget the particular. But it's out of the particular that Jesus comes to us, that he takes residency. And that particularity in this psalm is a place and a person. Um, the place is Jerusalem, and the person named in the psalm is David. Um, and David is the one who sort of brings this out and makes this place. And so verses 1 through 10 really have to do a lot with David's vow to God. It says that he would remember his self-denial in many translations or his suffering, and he would swore an oath to the Lord. He made a vow to the Mighty One of Jacob. I will not enter my house or go to bed. I will allow no sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids till I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling for the Mighty One of Jacob. And so this psalm is like a poetic retelling of the story that, that Kara read for us from 1 Samuel. 2 Samuel, or 2 Samuel. Um, it's a poetic retelling of, it, of what David does in that moment. Because what happens is the ark has sort of been squandering away. Like it, it, it hasn't been being brought into the holy city. It hasn't been being brought into Jerusalem. And it's David's idea to go and get it and to bring it back. To bring it back into Jerusalem. To bring it into Zion. Which is interesting because it, it seems to say that he is willing to put himself in relationship to this God as king. He's not just going to be a king, but he wants this God to sort of come and fill and be in that place. For God to sort of reside there, and so God makes sort of the check on these powers. God sort of is the one who's in charge. It's an imagery that brings out the fullness of what God is doing as God um, moves into the place where the real power is. It's he who gets this temple later built by Solomon, um, which is where the psalm gets a little weird because the quote at the end is, is more from a Solomon time than it is from a David time, but it seems to be healing in archetypes, for lack of a better word. Um, but uh, David seems to want to make this is the place where God will reside. This is the place. And so they come and they get it, and they bring it up and they say, let us worship at his footstool, saying, Arise, Lord, and come to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. 
May your priests be clothed with righteousness, and may your faithful people sing for joy. The priests are clothed in the salvation. They're sort of brought into this place. They're sort of, um, and that joy sort of radiates into the people of God from them. Now here's what I think is, is one of the ways the psalm functions on this pilgrimage is, is that ancient people have a different relationship to time than we do, although, sorry, we all have the same relationship to time. They have a way of appreciating time in a different way than we do that I think also some brain science says it might be more correct, too. That if you were to sing this song, if you were supposed to walk this psalm, if you were bringing the song, arise, let us go to the Lord, let us worship at his footstool. If you are doing that, thinking of 2 Samuel, thinking of all the stories that are encapsulated in this early part of the psalm, and walking there on your pilgrimage, um, the, this, this pilgrimage of ascent at a time, is you're bringing that present to you. You're making those memories part of your journey. And so what they're doing, in some sense, is ritually reenacting what David does with the ark. They, too, are accompanying and going to this place. And so this is, this is what's true about almost every memory you have. When you bring it back to the present, it changes. Um, so if you try to remember you know, your high school graduation, um, your 20th birth, 21st birthday party, I guess, in America is born. 20th is bag, 21st. I turned 21, great. Um, uh, if you try to remember those things, every time you bring them back, it doesn't stay stagnant. The memory actually changes. And so you're actually, and we don't think of it this way. We think of memory and time very sort of statically, but actually you're re-participating in that moment in memory. The way that it comes to you, the way that it sort of makes something again. And this is the truth of what I think these pilgrims are finding on the way in praying the psalm and doing the story, is that they're taking the corporate memory of the people of Israel and placing themselves inside it. Now, there's a, a, a way in which I think this can be true for us as Christians in a different way, is to say that, let's say, Easter 2019, you Christians up until... Let's just blame the Enlightenment, because that's fun. So, uh, 1700s, 1800s, um, the Enlightenment makes always a good foil. But um, Christians before then would have said Easter 2019, let's say in their time, 1719, is closer to Easter in day than a random day in 400 AD. That somehow that participation, that bringing up the songs together, of getting there early together and watching the sunrise and awaiting the dawn of Christ in the life, awaiting the joyous good news, awaiting um, saying hallelujah again in some traditions, of breaking forth and feasting if you've been fasting, is actually a way of participating in that original story in a way that places it closer to your time than the 2,000 years that have passed between. And I think, this may be a leap, but I think some of us have had Easter's like that. may not be that every Easter has been that way for me, but I've had Easter's where it feels like today is the day of new creation. Today is the day of Christ conquering the grave. It's, and incidentally, those things can actually come out at dark times, that Easter sort of lifts the spirits in a whole new way. That you sort of find that Christ has sort of risen nearer to you than the 2,000 years that have passed suggest. 
What I'm saying is, connecting this back to the psalm, is that that's what they're doing as they sing this, as they pray this, going on this journey. They're becoming closer to that time than you would think they actually are. They're not just telling the story to their kids, the why question, but they're actually living the why as they journey up to this place. This is what ancients do with pilgrims and labyrinths, too, in some ways, is that they reenact these things to sort of meet that space. So the priest receives salvation and they sort of go up to this place. And the second half is this, how God responds to this. He says that if you listen, if your sons keep my covenant and the statutes, I will teach them, and then their sons will sit on the throne for an ever and ever. The Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it as his dwelling place. And it says this sort of way in which God gives provision and care through that. So this is the way in which they pray that. Now, um, I'm not one who spends a lot of time thinking about when the scripture was written, partially for the reason we just talked about with memory, right? Like, I don't think it's as wise for us to be like, well, John was obviously written before Second Temple, this, that, and the other, and so that gives it some meaning that isn't open to us, unless you understand that Jonah was written in the Second Temple period, or something like that. And I just don't think it's a help. Good preachers can do a lot with this. I have a friend who is a good preacher and does a lot of this historical research, and she'll make you weep knowing that Jeremiah was written during exile, but lo and behold, I am not that. Um, also, I, I, I find it less fruitful. Me and her talk about it, and that's the way it is, but... Um, I don't find it that fruitful because I think the word interrupts in different ways than that. It's not just knowing where it came from, it's how it sort of interrupts today. Um, and that sort of is this way in which it sort of works out. But, but if you're thinking of this passage, and this is a big debate as I was studying this week, is, is the psalm written during a time when they could actually make the journey to where David was on the throne? It's like a quarter of the people said that. Or the people said it was written after the destruction of the temple and after the people were outside of the covenant. Which is fascinating that they keep this memory alive of David. They keep this memory alive of these kings. They keep this memory, memory alive of covenant that says if you do these things, there will be somebody who reigns there in the lineage of David forever and ever. One of the fascinating parts about the Bible is it keeps this weird scoreboard of in which we always are wrong and God always is right. Um, and so the people almost write out, this is not true. This is not true for us today. And yet they ritually enact why it's not true. And there's, there's, there's a way in which, you know, most of the Bible from Deuteronomy onward, except for maybe Ruth and a couple other books to Second Kings, is all a question of how did we end up in exile? How did we lose what God had promised us? And for these people, these Jews, they don't lose faith. But they retell the story, and they retell the tradition in a way that somehow is going to make sense. That something is going to come out of this. If you listen, David will sit on his throne forever and ever. But it, he didn't. And we... Keep that memory alive. Now, that is, uh, that is bold to make your religion away in, in keeping alive the ways in which you failed. Um, it, it gives it a weird sort of tinge to it. But one of the ways as I was thinking about it this week is there's this if and there's this forever. 
First, that they'll sit on the throne forever. But then the second part, um, and where God talks about, this is my resting place forever and ever. Here I will sit, not enthroned, and I have desired. In the first half, in David's uh, 1 through 10, it makes it seem like David is the one who brings God to Zion. That David is the one who makes this the home for God. And yet, when, when Yahweh speaks in the second half, when the Lord speaks in the second half, it's, I have desired this place. I have made this home, and I will sit here and be here forever and ever. Now, I think we, I've been blessed to know, particularly in my last church, a lot of parents, a couple parents, whose kids who have ended up in jail um, for, for real, for the right not for the right reason. Doing the wrong thing, but they did what they did. Like, that was the penalty they ended up in. And it was interesting talking to them oftentimes because they had this, you could tell they had this if in their life. If my son had listened, if my son had followed these patterns, if it went this way, we would have resided and feasted together and made a life, right? And yet those parents never seemed to hold that out as like, so I cut them off. The forever part is that they're still their child. They still visit. They still relate. The, the forever um, love relationship, um, almost like parent-child covenant, which I've never really heard covenant used that way, lasts regardless of whether the child listened or not. And there was deep pain in some of these stories, deep challenges, deep brokenness, and yet they found that there was this forever way in which they couldn't just end that. I think this is the, the case with marriage, too, is that, is that um, I had a professor who was a marriage counselor and also crazy, um, and people come to him and they say, well, you help us divorce well. And he says, I will help you divorce so well that you won't get divorced. Um, and if you've ever seen it's this weird movie with, uh, I don't know why I'm thinking of this, we're moving with Bruce Willis, um, and they're going to bed, and all the people, their parents show up in the bedroom, and this, that, and the other, and it's because those people are never gone, right? So even if you're the type of person who is like, my son has committed a crime, gone to jail, I'm cutting him off, they're still there. Divorce, the person is never gone. Like, these covenants, these ways in which we make relationships will reside with you forever, and you can either think about it or not, this is the great line from funeral home directors I know about today, particularly about funerals, is you can pay for a funeral now or you can pray for therapy, pay for therapy later. Um, that that person is going to reside with you in memory until you really let them go in the way that proper to let them go, which is what humans have done for very, very long. We find ancient graves everywhere. Um, that's what people do. Um, and so you, you sort of need to live in these patterns to find that. And this is what I think is happening in the psalm, is, is that God says, if you do these things, this will last forever. And in reading it today, and in maybe writing it for the original person, that wasn't true. And yet, God's covenant, God's election of Israel, God's binding to these people is one that can't be broken. God will still be here. And this part of this should come as almost no shock to Christians. Because that is what we hold out for in Jesus. 
That is what we know of Christ. Is that Christ is this one who sits on that throne in his resurrection. He is the one who becomes Zion, place for us, in a whole new way that he is the one who sort of becomes the fulfillment of these things. The if fails, fails the church as well in some ways. And yet God is faithful and does not revoke that promise, does not leave that relationship behind. That is why the church is, we talk about, and we'll see it in Advent, particularly. this is a very Advent psalm as I sat with it, because it puts you in that position of awaiting what Christ is about to do, how God is going to show up again. That this psalm, for us, calls out what God has done in Jesus Christ. How God has not lifted the forever, but has come and resided in that place. Come and renewed that covenant with us. And so, what the result of that is, I will bless her with abundant provisions. Her poor I will satisfy with food. I will clothe her priests with salvation and her faithful people will sing for joy. That what we have received as Christians is the promise that God makes here in part. And what it can call out for us in this psalm, reading it too, is that hope that Christ returns again. Some of this is true today. We sing in joy. Instead of table, we offer bread for our food, or for the hungry. Uh, in our lives as Christians, we fulfill some of these things, and yet we await God's restoration of this place. And so we find in Revelation 21, if we want to think about this for us particulars, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, the, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old things have passed away. She was seated on the throne and said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write these down, for these words are trustworthy and true. That we await, in the same way that the psalm does, the fulfillment of these things. And so it ends with uh, a horn, a lamp, and a crown. I don't know how you draw a horn. Um, it's, a, it's off a ram or something. Um, uh, it ends with this horn and ram and crown. And then... This, if most, almost everybody thinks that this portion is read in a way that God will fulfill them for these people. That even if with David was there, they're still awaiting this horn, this lamp, this crown. And it's not like the craziest thing when we think about Jesus as all three of these. That Jesus is the horn of salvation. It's this thing that grows up in the world. It comes from Isaiah and it's in the New Testament. That Christ is the lamp and the light of the world and, and, and sort of draws us into his presence. And that Christ is crowned. And here is where I want to end is that Philippians 2 tells us the story of how Christ descended 
uh, took on the form of a bondservant um, and went to death even on a cross and was obedient even unto death. And so God raised him up and gave him the name above every name. This psalm begins in affliction. Remember how David suffered. This psalm ends in glory. I think that that's the path of discipleship. I think that's the path of our lives. We exist in affliction and suffering. And we seek to bring about God into the world in which the ways that we can. But, I don't always want to throw you guys under the bus with me, but we fail. Um, at least I do, but I think we fail. And yet it is God's forever. It is God's stamp that God will bring about this. It gives us the assurance that there will be a final covenant. We are raised up at the trumpet zone and brought into that new Jerusalem, that new heavenly city with joy. The clothed is with righteousness, and the poor and the hungry are fed. And we are given life again to be and reside with God again. <clears throat> Let us pray. God, we see in Jesus the image of David, that he is a son of David. From where he's born to where he dies, his mark, life is marked by similarities to that story. We also see in Christ that he becomes the holy place for us. He tabernacles with us, as John tells us takes up residency near us, comes into our world in that way, becomes our holy place as well, as we await the new Jerusalem. God, bring this psalm to mind for us, so we see how you've been active in history. Bring this psalm to mind to us so that we can understand who Christ is in that history. And bring this psalm to mind to us, because as the Jews awaited the arrival of that holy day, we too wait as well in a kingdom that is here, but not yet. And so we pray together the prayer that we started the service with, Eternal God, you build your throne, Messiah of Jesus, Messiah.